This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning, sports fans. Good morning, business fans. And good morning, statistics fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, along with my co-host this morning, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen and Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner. Some combination of the three of us, along with our co-host, Cade Massey, are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, replayed throughout the week. We're on iTunes. We're on SoundCloud. We're also doing a lot of tweeting lately. At least I've been doing a lot of tweeting lately at at WMoneyBall. And, of course, it's been great. Lots of callers have been calling in. So this is a call-in show. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And you can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So good morning, guys. How are you doing this morning? Excellent. How are you doing? I'm sure Shane is doing a little bit better than the rest of us. Well, it's we're, been we're, a good couple weeks. We're going to get to the role that the bo- Mr. Boston here is on. Of course, he's got his Celtics jacket on, his Red Sox hat on. I don't even know if that's a Celtics jacket, but it is Celtics green. It can't green. be today, at least. It could be today. Yeah, well. But, you know, we always start out the first half hour with what caught our eye in sports. And so... Um, and actually, I know Adi gave a lecture to some undergrads just lately about momentum and not, and whether it exists or not. Mm-hmm. But what I'd like to talk about is specifically one of the baseball series and just get your opinion on something. So the Dodgers won last night. They won in 13 innings. It's a walk-off single, I believe. Um, tied the series with the Brewers at 2-2. And so now, just to remind everyone, actually, I, I always get it confused. It's 2-3-2 two, two in mm-hmm. baseball. Yes. So the next game's at the Dodgers, and then the final two are at the Brewers. Okay, so here's my question to you. Who do you think should be the favorite right now to win the Dodgers-Brewers series? And before you answer, the classic answer, of course, the Shane Jensen answer for four-plus years on this show is, well, the answer is obvious. It's 50-50. But, all right, so I want to make an argument against it, and then you guys just give me... You just tell all our listeners here in Wharton Moneyball why there's really... It's not that what I'm saying couldn't be true. There's just no evidence that it's true. So one would be you go with the first, the momentum or non-stationarity story, which is the Dodgers won the critical game four. Their probability of winning game five is higher given they've won game four. So there's some sort of momentum or state dependence, as we like to call it in my home field of marketing. Then, of course, the winner of game five, you would agree, definitely has an advantage in the series. So if the Dodgers have the advantage in game five, they have an advantage in the series. But on the other hand, the Brewers have two games at home, and maybe there's a slight home field advantage in baseball. So if you had to weigh on one side, home field, which the Brewers have, two of three at home, if you had to weigh on the other side, if it exists, momentum or non-stationary on the Dodgers' side, are any of these effects even worth talking about, or it's 50-50? So I'll go to Shane Jensen first. You know my answer. Neither of those effects are worth worrying about. It's 50-50. Okay. Okay. So the home field advantage, I'll start with that, which is in Brewer's favor, 
is, uh, is something that is a little bit opaque. I mean, we know it exists. It's about 53% on average for Major League Baseball teams. Not sure how that translates out to the playoffs, whether that's the same. Let's or, imagine it's the so same. So if it's the same, that gives a, a little bit of advantage to Milwaukee. The fact that the, the Dodgers won the, this previous game, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take Shane's corner here. I'm going to discount that as anything other than, well, this is, the game had to end. Someone had to win. Therefore, it doesn't really have any predictive value. Um, I think there is, I mean, we, we, in, in my class, I talked about momentum as you mentioned, but that was for an individual player. And I think the the case for momentum for an individual player, what we call heat or hotness, I think is a little stronger than the case for momentum for a team um, in the sense that, I mean, listen, we all played some sports. Come on. <laughs> heat, it's something, that's something that, that does exist. Well, and let me I, ask you a question. Well, we can't necessarily measure it or determine who's got it and who's just lucky, but I think, but I think it exists. you finally convinced me on one thing, which yeah. is this. So let's imagine that in baseball, you have nine players on each team. There's more than that. There's people on the bench, whatever. But let's just say there's nine players on each team that are flipping coins. I may get some hot players, but so may the other team. That's right. So now you've convinced me of one thing, which I think is an important lesson for all of us. Both teams are flipping coins, and it's hard to predict who's going to be hot. But if they flip the same number of coins, they should have the same number. There's no reason to believe they wouldn't have the same number of hot players, which therefore team momentum seems harder to justify than, oh, a given player got hot. And maybe a given player, when they say got hot, momentum... Maybe their coin just happened to come up heads three games in a row. That can happen. True. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, that's a hot play. And the, count, the counter-argument, or, or at least under that model, where momentum would matter is in a sport where there's a single player that is way more important than the other players on the team, like, like for quarterbacks in football. Or basketball. Or goalies in hockey. Yeah. Um, and in baseball, there's some structural things that make it even less likely that momentum will carry forward in the sense that the most important player, at least to start any baseball game, it's is not playing the previous and that, game. And that, and, that, uh, and that cycles through. So that's that's how I see it. The other issue is I think it's interesting, particularly after having attended my uh, first sort of playoff Yankee games. It's funny how I went this long in my life before I went to t- attend a playoff Wait, Yankee game. are you telling me that... These the- are the first playoff Yankee games I've ever been to. Yep. That's remarkable that to amazing? me. I went to every Yankee playoff game between 1996 and 2003. And I mean, Honestly, you should go to every one of them from here on out. I was in California for some of those. So, um, so I, did not, I, I did attend the, some of the Phillies playoffs games in World Series, which were, which were wonderful. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that's differ, different about it is the crowd is insanely uh, loud and rowdy and and pushing for the team, and I'm not sure what what effect that has. So, if on you the had team. to guess, I, you just mentioned the stat: home field advantage fifty three forty seven. Would any of us guess that it could potentially be larger for playoff games? I'm not saying to him. I'm saying fifty five forty five. By the way, because let's of the crowd, a, maybe yeah, yeah. let's imagine it was fifty five forty five. That's actually starting. I mean, when you talk, when I talk to people about effect sizes, and I say this has a ten, you know, it's a, or it's a five percent increase, which you know, or you know, that's starting to get to somewhere where I'm at least going to have a conversation with somebody about it. I would agree. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the data suggests that there's far more wins at home during the playoffs than the the fifty fifty model would suggest. Um, I'm not I, sure how how we can't probably sign enough I, games yeah, I don't, to show I mean, it. But. I, I make no distinction in my mind between when 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 it, when it ends up being just one realization. Yeah, a distinction between fifty five forty five versus fifty fifty. Oh, that doesn't necessarily matter, but right. Of, I mean, but what, on the other hand, if matter? you stack together, uh, um, you know, three if or four we stack games, to, well, well, that starts well, to multiply. So right now, just to be clear, we'll all, we'll all make predictions here. 
Dodgers, but if you're talking Astros, about home field, you can't stack together all the games. No, but it really right. comes down so to the one Dodgers game difference. Brewers, though, for you guys, sorry, still coin flip. Total for me, it's coin a, flip it's a at coin this flip. point. Also, yeah. here, the other issues. Is they're all really, coin flips. I think they're. I mean, these in, in many ways, I mean, these teams, all four of them, are quite comparable. I mean, there isn't necessarily one who's well. I think most people would argue of them the, have a real high payroll I compared most, to the others. I think most people might True. argue the Astros and the Red Sox are comparable, well, and the Brewers I mean. and Dodgers. The two, the two but of them are not, comparable. I mean, no, the American League better than no. National League. But the, but the two games, the two series going on right now are essentially facing what I would consider to be comparable teams. Yeah, and by the mm-hmm. way, thanks to our producer Matt Dax. Yeah. I mean, the Dodgers were minus one twenty-five going into the series, so I yeah. mean that's. Pretty close to 50 Yeah, well, minus 50. 110 would be uh, the, the Vegas version of 50 Right, would be the Vegas yeah. version. So I want to talk about one other thing, a couple of things that caught my eye in baseball as well. So we have two pitchers in baseball pitching right now, uh, you know, uh, that are great regular season pitchers, but have never performed particularly well in the playoffs. So one, by the way, obviously for the Dodgers, Clayton Kershaw. Kershaw, yeah. So just to give you his numbers, I, I actually looked them up. So his his, by the way, his regular season record is... Maybe in, un, in non-comparable to any pitcher. Matter of fact, I think I talked about this a little bit last week. In the last 70 years, his regular season record is 153 wins and 69 losses. So that's much, I mean, that's the greatest winning percentage. He would go down as the pitcher with the greatest winning percentage in the last 70 years. I guess years. I didn't realize that. Plus, his ERA is half, almost half a run lower than anybody who has pitched in the last 70 years. His ERA is 2.39. That's his career ERA for Clayton Kershaw, and he's got a whip of one point zero zero five. Those and are this his, is his season. This is his season. Okay. Well, now let me, be, go to, let me I go. I mean, I mean, you're saying he's a half a run better than Maddox? I mean, what? That is correct. Really? Yeah. Wow, uh, that is uh, a little surprising. I'm looking at Pedro Martinez right now. All right, look at Pedro Martinez's career ERA. Okay. Okay. Sure. And then uh, Clayton Kershaw in the playoffs is eight and eight with a four point two six ERA. Mm-hmm. Another great pitcher, David Price. Is one hundred and forty three and seventy five with a three two five ERA, and in the playoffs two and nine with a five point four two ERA, which is stunning. It's stunning. So, any explanation for why? By the way, what's Pedro's? Pedro Pedro was uh, career was two hundred nineteen and a hundred. That was his record. Okay. And by the way, this this percentage is better than that. But what's his ERA? Uh, 2.93 in the American League uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s. All right. No, 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 no. So, look, I did not, great point, I did not adjust for which league, and as we know, there's a half a run difference, roughly, between the leagues. So he would be comparable, you would say, Mm -hmm. all else equal. As a matter of fact, his career winning percentage is probably comparable to Kershaw's. It's, it's, his ERA very, is comparable. Well, I don't know what his whip it's is. It's very but, illustrious company. We can also, certainly agree also, on that. Just, yeah. Also, it's not, we're not comparing, comparing apples to apples. Kershaw's now going to experience the next five years of decline. And you looked at you looked at Pedro's career. So you that, got the, that the beginning, the middle, true. and the end. That, that's so, a good point, too. It's not really but, appropriate to do that. But it's it. I mean, no one's denying Kershaw is, is a first-round, first-tier Hall of Famer. Absolutely. Yeah. Even if his career ended right now, absolutely. he would be so. Yeah. I was just wondering if you guys had any thoughts to our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball. Why? Why Why would these why guys he do badly in the so playoffs? well? And I mean, one argument would be what we really need to do is break down his regular season numbers against, let's call it, good teams, good teams yeah. and bad. And maybe then there's not that, that much how, of a delta. That's right. That's right. Um yeah, no, I, I think that's probably the essence of it. I mean, or, or to the extent that this is sort of, you know, like a real kind of effect, I would say it's just because he's playing better teams in the playoffs. By the way, thanks to our producer, Matt Datz. This is why I should always look at my screen. So he's given me, for the four major sports, he's given me the home winning percentage for both the regular season and the playoffs. 
So for baseball, Adi, you were off by 1%. It's 54% in the regular season and 54% in the playoffs. NHL, 55% in both. Interestingly, NBA, 60% in the regular season, 65% in the playoffs. And NFL, 57% in the regular season, 65% in the playoffs. Interesting. 65%. That's 65%. a fairly dramatic. Yeah. That's a pretty dramatic increase. No, but the problem with that is, and this is the NFL, which I think is the explanation, is the NFL, there's a huge advantage to being the better team, and you play at home all your games. There's no balancing out. So I think what we're observing in the NFL is the fact that predominant home games are, are played by the better team at home, so they'll win well, that's, more. Well, that's a great point, because, you know, right now, let's imagine we wanted to make an argument <clears throat> which of the four teams was better than the other. Yeah, but you're still playing at the other team's park. Yeah. In, in NFL, if you're the Patriots every year, you're always, you're always at home. home. And they're the better team. And they're and, the better team, and so they should win 65% the so I think that's of the reason games. why we see that. Yeah, and I think probably the same thing for ba- basketball, is that there's more talent disparity in basketball between teams, and so home... The having home court advantage right. is more indicative of being a better team in, than basketball than but it is in hockey But basketball tends to play seven-game series, which gives you more of a balance. And in football, well, it's as, one as, and But done. there's no balance in basketball. No, no balance. In the, but there's balance in the sense of this, uh, that home versus away is more balanced mm-hmm. than in football, where yeah. there's one game, and it's, it's, you yeah. know, it's at somebody's own right. Park, Somebody, right. And, and, <laughs> the other, and then the other team's eliminated. Except for the Super Bowl, which has nothing. So, it, that, right. that's, so thanks for that data, Matt. That was very useful as well. So any thoughts about why you'd have a pitcher. Basically, they're both essentially two runs worse in the playoffs. Now, what's interesting, the other thing that's interesting... Well, one thing to toss out, at least with Kershaw, is just variation. It's not that much. It's uh, 16 games or 20 games he's pitched in the playoffs. Well, 16 decisions. He's 16 decisions, and and ERA in a short series is a highly variable number. I mean, that's not... We don't have to make that much out of it. Um... So he's also yeah, has, he's also struggled with injuries, and by the end of the season, he's not necessarily back. Well, let me in say the following: It's probably a half a season's worth of starts. How about mm-hmm. that? Yeah. So for a, for a half a season's worth of postseason starts, he's a four point two six ERA pitcher. A little shocking. That's a little shocking. And David Price, by the way, is two and nine, but he's pitched at least as many postseason yeah, games as Kershaw, I, and he's a five point four two ERA pitcher. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I think at least in Kershaw's sense, I think you might be right. It might mostly be chance variation. But would you sort of say, so take a, a, a hitter that's known to be bad in the playoffs. I, well, I mean, I, do we have a, a good hitter? Oh, okay. a, a, Alex Rodriguez? Okay. okay. <laughs> Alex Rodriguez no, he's a, a good one. He, okay. he's, he's, he's great. Do you sort of believe it that in... Do you believe in his sort of? Do you believe in that differential you, being real cho- more yeah. because believe, no. the hitters have more opportunities? I don't, I don't believe he's a choker, Adi. I'd be, I'd, I'll tell you what I'd like to get your opinion on. So, watching the Yankees early on in the playoffs before they got eliminated, I started to believe is Giancarlo Stanton the next reincarnation of Alex Rodriguez? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, I don't think Stanton chokes. I think he's got similar to Rodriguez a long, looping, flawed swing, which good pitchers that can pitch him appropriately, which means breaking balls on the outside part of the plate or off the plate, can capitalize on. And a lot of pitchers don't have the control or the ability to do it. So just like I think Alex Rodriguez for a career feasted on a lot of bad pitching, when good pitchers pitch against him, unlike Aaron Judge, by the way, who not only walks a tremendous amount but has a great eye, I just thought I was looking at the two mm-hmm. swings. Yeah. Judge's swing is more compact. He covers the outside part of the plate better. I don't think Stan's a choker. I think he's a flawed. Yeah. Well, you think basically he has, so, a, he has a tough time with the curveball. He has a tough time with a the curveball. So, so curve d- does this then suggest to you, if you believe this effect is real, that somebody like David Price feasts on bad hitters? 
but when he faces good hitters, does not do as well. Well, we could argue that. I'd have to look at it. Yeah. But one of the things that people are talking about with the Astros, for example, is a wonderful article about Alex Bregman. And just what he's, he just doesn't swing in bad pitches. He makes you work, the pitcher work for every potential out, and, and, and it, he's very difficult to get out. And that's the exact opposite of, of John Carlo. Exactly. Um, I mean, we, I don't want to segue, I don't want to hijack the conversation too much, but we have the offseason coming up, and, and the teams that, are, that just missed the playoffs or went to the playoffs and lost, they have to argue who are they going to get to bring to their team and, and to, to make a compliment. I think the Yankees need to acquire someone who will who will add in the playoffs, will be able to be tough against top pitching. Of course, I know my, my choice. I doubt they'll get him, which is Trout. I mean, oh, I think, why not? <laughs> why not? Collect but, all the MVPs. How can we possibly afford that, right, Shane? Yeah, no, that's right. Afford him. Well, it's, 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 maybe, maybe, some, maybe some ex-Yankee can buy the L.A. Angels and just give them to you. Oh, you, uh, that, I mean, that's, that's, that's a nice way great idea. Oh, that's never happened yeah. before. That's never happened. Thank you for Derek Jeter, by the way, for many things. But by the way, Derek yeah. Jeter was exactly that kind of hitter who was a tough out. Derek Jeter was that kind of hitter. We, you know, Gregorius is somewhat that kind of hitter. But either way, let me just say, I think we would agree, one of the things that's amazing about the Red Sox and watching that Yankees-Red Sox, everybody on the Red Sox is, is a that tough kind out. of hitter. Yes. They're all a tough out. Yep. I'm not saying they're not pitchable, but basically every I mean, you wake up in the fourth inning and I'm thinking... How did Sabathia already throw eighty pitches? I mean, it's like, gee, what's that? What's going exactly. on here? Which, in the contrast of the Yankees, where everyone in the lineup was was a home run threat, that's not the yeah. same as a tough out. And, no, and, and the, the latter is great for the season. Yankees but set I don't the all time record this year. I don't for the most think it's the great for great for the playoffs. I mean, there, I didn't, I haven't calculated this, but I wonder what the fraction, what the home run rate is relative to the regular season. That would be good too. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Brown, and I'm here this morning with my co host Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. If you want to join the conversation, if you have a thought about uh, playoff versus regular season performance or anything else, baseball, basketball, football, anything, uh, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. We'd love to take your call. So, guys, let's make a little bit of a shift from baseball, though it'll be interesting to see tonight. Let me just say the following. Forget momentum. I think we agree. The Astros better darn win tonight's game. <laughs> no, I mean, tell you, if even they go I down could, three to one. I mean, yeah, well, that's that. You know, I mean, you, the Red Sox already, I think, favored just because less well, coin flips. Right? Let me ask you a different question. Oh, they're definitely favored at this point. Let me ask you a different question. Related. Let's stay on baseball just for one more second. Let's suppose the Red Sox did win tonight's game. Okay, so now they're up three to one. That means there's only one—I can even do this math in my head. There's only one sequence by which the Astros then win the series. Win, win, win. If each of those is probability a half, that means they have roughly a one-eighth chance to win the series. If I gave you eight-to-one odds on the Astros, if the Red Sox win tonight, would you take it? Assuming you want to just—you don't want to make money. You just want to break even. And if you're saying the answer is no— which I'm saying no, I would not take the Astros at 8-1, to one. then you agree with me that it's not coin flips in momentum or some other factor that's oh, making it not a half. The I'm Red Sox are better. I'm going to put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> the Red right. Sox are better. That could be the, well, all right. So, no, no, you've come up with a very I mean, good explanation. They're 108 and they, the Astros are 103. 103. Um, well, that's not measurably different. Right, I tell you what, I would take the, I would take the, uh, the bet. You would take it at 8-1. Yeah. to one. Okay, yeah. so you and I will make a bet for $1. One dollar. I hope the scenario arises where you guys make this bet. By the yeah, way, yeah, no, I'm sure you do. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> Shane, are you taking this bet? At I'll eight take to the one? bet too. I mean, well, it's it's a coin flip I, I, bet, man. By the way, I mean, one of the reasons why I guns. take it is that I think I, th- I do think the Astros are at least an equal team. Agreed. Agreed. 
And so I, just I for the fun of it, I, yeah. I think it's a, it's not it's not an issue yeah. to take a bet for a but dollar. But I do, by the way, I, I like where you went, Audie, with this, which is, so the number one reason you have to, if you say you're not going to take the bet, it's not momentum, it's not any of those things. The Red Sox are a better, better team. team. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, I understand, th- by, by the way, but you would argue three to one is not that different than the coin flip of two to two. So there's not that much evidence to provide. No. But I, there's the whole season. And as you and I know, we watched the Red Sox this season and they had some miraculous play, particularly in the middle of the season, yep. where they just couldn't seem to lose. I haven't, I'm not nearly as familiar with the Astros, but the Red Sox just look fantastic yeah. and have looked great all season. And there's been times when they've looked weaker, particularly in September, but there was 40 man roster and they had their all locked up. What does that mean? Right? Totally meaningless. So, and I think at certain level, I, you have to agree that the the, the Red Sox are a a, a, a team for the gen- or well, generation. Maybe, maybe our producer Matt Dats can put it up a poll for us on at what at W Moneyball. He could put up a poll to see how many people would take an eight to one odds bet if the conditional Red Sox, on the Red Sox winning the Red tonight. Sox winning but tonight. I mean, but the, yeah. but the Astros have a, they have several pitchers who are fantastic, and I think they'll they'll stack them up for the end and. Um, you know, well, yeah, I mean, eight I, to one I, sounds pretty good. Yeah, no, I and I, I <laughs> sounds I, like I, a halftime to halftime to half. It does. I see them as actually equal teams. Again, I didn't watch the Astros a ton this year, but I do know that they had a tremendous number of injuries for right. a large yep. part of the season, and so you could certainly argue that 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 you know having those you know, and the Red Sox did not, so that's probably enough to make up to make up make a, up a five a, game difference a, in the sort of overall standing. And the final point is that the Astros had a a better predicted winning percentage mm-hmm. based on runs scored and runs allowed. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Well, which is that, that would lean in your favor. It does. That it, you know, you like that yeah. eight to one bet because if we believe the regular season is indicative, they right. were the stronger team by just you know predicted win percentage for runs scored and runs allowed. All right, yeah. well that's well we'll see what happens tonight. And I, I'm actually hoping for the Red Sox win too. By the way, for some reason I do not like this Astros team, but I'm not hoping the Red Sox win the World Series. Of course, I couldn't. I couldn't no, possibly root not. for that. I couldn't. How are, pos- how are you on the Brewers? Where do you feel about just, you know this plucky team? Yeah, I'd be fine if the Brewers won the World Series. Have they won the World Series in any recent memory? I don't think uh, so. The last early eighties, I, I think. Uh, Eighty three. Right? Yeah. Eighty three was definitely okay. the Brewers' year. That was whatever. Gorman Thomas and Robin right, Yount right, and right. Paul Molitor, mm-hmm. and that was their that was the big heyday of the Brewers, if you'd like. Yeah, I think eighty three was the year. Although that could have been uh, White Sox eighty four. Eighty three. I'm going to go with eighty three for the Brewers, but Matt's going to let me know. Um, so let's move a little bit on to football. Um, so I have a very simple question for you now, which I don't think has a simple answer. Um, obviously, our co-host, Kay Massey, has the Massey Peabody system where they rank teams and they publish articles in the Wall Street Journal, et cetera, et cetera. The if Washington I had, Post now also. And the Washington Post. If I had to ask you, who is the favorite right now in the AFC of football? And I'll list four teams. And I think the favorite has to be among these four teams, but you could disagree. Mm-hmm. The Chiefs, the Patriots, the Ravens. Or the Bengals. And I'll even throw in, by the way, if you'd like, I'll throw in the Chargers, who have looked very, very good as but well. why is this hard? Well, I'll I'm try, just saying I'll t- the I'm Patriots. Gonna, okay, I'm gonna, well, I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> I'm going to tell you why it's hard. I'm going to tell you why it's hard. Because if we look at the Massey Peabody ratings that just came out today, um, the Patriots are ranked, at the moment, the fifth best team in football, the third best team in the AFC, behind the Ravens and the Chargers. So I'm just asking you if you think they're the favorites in the AFC right now. I'm a now. card-carrying Bayesian. So mm-hmm. what? I'm shrinking back to the previous no, years. No, no, but which? No, no. So wait a second. <laughs> That's no, all. Well, so first, well, let me let me break this down a little bit for our listeners who are on Wharton Moneyball. We've talked about this, but you know, not every listener's listened to us for four years. First, say what you mean by Bayesian, 
and then say what prior you're shrinking back towards. Because we could have a debate about what's the right prior for the Patriots or for any team to shrink back towards. Okay, so what I mean by prior is my, my information about a team before the season starts. And that is uh, essentially my belief. And really, that's what it is in this context. Uh, so before any game has been played, who do I think is the best team? And I would use I will use not just the previous year, but also the previous years before that to kind of estimate my prior. And I have a lot of weight on the, on the, on the Patriots just being good. And it would take a lot to knock me off of that. And have I seen a lot to knock me off of that? And that's really the question. I mean, they, they're 4-2. and two. They beat the Chiefs, who were, which were undefeated. Um, it was a tight game, yes. But I also think the, the Patriots tend to get better during the season as the season goes on. So um, I'm thinking, if, in short, of a, if there weren't someone kind of really obviously better at this point, playing really obviously better, then maybe I would dump them off their, their throne. I hate to call it that, but indeed. They're on the um, throne. They're on the throne. Uh, so I would, I would, I'm, I'm still, my prior pushes me back pretty hard to, to, to the, uh, to the uh, Patriots. And I, I don't really have anything to kind of, I'm not really going to counter-argue on that. I mean, everything you said does make sense. The Patriots do tend to often scuffle for a few games in the early season and kind of have the ability to turn it on. And, you know, of course, you know, people have been betting on Tom Brady getting worse, and I think he does look a little bit worse this year than previous years, but they still have a really good team. I don't know. Just, that 390-yard game against the Chiefs didn't look... So, they, right. Look, there are, it's interesting about Brady. So there's, I, like, you know, there's a couple-minute period in a game, as a, obviously a hater right. of the Patriots, where I watch the game and I say, I knew it. It's coming. And then there's the rest of the game, and then Tom Brady looks like Tom Brady. I'm like, Jesus, this guy's going to play till he's 50. What's going on here? <laughs> yeah, no, and I, and I mean, he, he does, and he, he still looks great, but the Patriots' defense does not. They got no. absolutely destroyed by the Chiefs, as I expected they would. And so I think if, if you were to put more weight on the kind of early season actual results right now, I think you would have to favor Baltimore among those choices. Really? Just because of their, their they defense have an has been... amazing defense. And by, they are by far the best point differential of anybody in the AFC And right they've now. got the Flacco strategy of how to score in the NFL they, today. They, they Bomb it deep and wait for the They have that flag. Flacco move. Throw it deep and get pass interference. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty infallible. Well, let me ask you a different question. Let's imagine it turns out that the Patriots... Do not get home field. Let me ask you a different question. Let's suppose the Patriots end up not even one of the top two seeds. Yeah. Which I, I don't remember the last time that hasn't happened, except when they missed the playoffs when, you know, when... Yeah, I'm trying to think. Now. I mean, they've been to the AFC Championship game, I think, seven years in a row now, right. which is but ridiculous. I'm just saying, but... they've also went there as one of the top you... two seeds. So let's imagine they're the three seed. Let's imagine Kansas City finishes out of them, maybe Baltimore, Baltimore yep, or, yep. San, or San Diego or whoever it is finishes out of them. I still, let's assume they're going to win their division, although the Dolphins had an impressive, had a good win against the Bears this week. Let's assume they're going to win the division, but they're not one you of the You guys top aren't four. feeling the Jets, huh? <laughs> no, but let me just say, the AFC East... Short is, answer, no. The AFC East, <laughs> the AFC East is a lot better than we thought they were going to be. In yeah, other words, that is so true. it's not like the Patriots are going to just mow the through the conference. Walk it usually is, I feel like, for the Patriots. I agree. But let's, uh, let me go back to my hypothetical. I'm, I'm in the hypothetical today. Red Sox went tonight. Would you take 8-1? to one? The Patriots are the three seed in the AFC. So they play home field in the first game, but then they're on the road. What do you guys think? And they have to play an extra game. Them, for them like, to go to the Super Bowl out of the AFC? Yeah. I mean, you can't. I mean, if if they have to, if they don't have a bye week, I I, I feel like there's no way you can't you can consider them to be the the, the favorite to it go to the Super Bowl. The I mean, can be lost, there's no right? way. That's let's it, even let's condition. So let me do another hypothetical. Yeah. They're the three seed. 
they win the first round they game. They win the wild card. Okay, so well now then, they're playing right. at the two seed. Right. They're playing at the two. Let's imagine it goes according I'm, to the I'm at least I'm willing to believe the Patriots are a better enough team to overcome home field advantage. Right. But, I, no, but not to overcome right. having to play an so, extra game. But I, let me go back. To, go, yeah. Let me be clear about my hypothetical for our listeners who are in Wharton Moneyball. The Patriots end up as the three seed. They beat the six seed. The fourth seed beats the five. So the three plays at the two. The four plays at the one. Are the Patriots the favorites to go to the Super Bowl? Out of the AFC. If they're the three seed sitting there, there's four teams left. Are they the favorite? Let's imagine I'm making it up. It's Kansas City, Baltimore. In my view? Patriots, Chargers. Let's say those are the four teams. Okay, so they're no longer the home field advantage going That's correct. Through. I think the home field advantage in football is big enough to knock them off. That's just my sense. I mean, it's 57. That's about a three-point advantage. I think that's a whatever difference that I'm pushing from a deep, a deeply descended prior. Meaning, yeah. when I mean by deeply descended, it's it's far in the past. The prior is important now. We've only six games in, but the prior is going to be far less important by 16 games through the season plus the playoffs. So I would still give the Patriots a little bump for being the Patriots, but to overcome several home field disadvantages, I wouldn't. I wouldn't by the way, it. nothing's changed. But the Patriots are winning the Super Bowl. Here's the here's the Patriots. <laughs> the line so you're Matt, looking at. The no, line. no, Matt just put up the the Patriots' remaining schedule. So let's just have a Boston day for our. We have to celebrate oh, Boston well, a little you bit. Guys. All right. Thank so you. the Patriots are four and two. We agree yeah, with that, yeah, right? Yeah. They're playing the Bears. Well, that could be a tough game. Yeah. The Bills. <laughs> Oh, boy. That will not right. be a That's tough not game, gonna, hopefully. This could be a tough game. The Packers. Yeah. So we'll have to find yeah. out where that game is. Maybe Matt yeah. can tell us where that game is. The Titans. Ooh, the right. Jets. <laughs> the Vikings. Eh. Yeah. Then Dolphins. Mm. Steelers. Steelers mm. are a tough team. Bills and Jets. I, will, right. I, so I, I think Steelers, something like four out of the next five are on the road, by the way. so, um, so a right, lot. By the way, that game against the Packers is at home. So they, the two or three tough games that they have left... Maybe you could argue the Vikings. Maybe you could argue the Steelers. Always Steelers, the Steelers. Steelers, Steelers Always could the be. Steelers we'll see where that game. game. Matt will tell us where Jeez. that game is. But they're, what, 4-2? and two? They're winning minimum 11 games. Yep. A, a minimum 11. That's, and may, that's right, probably true. They're the one true. or two seed. Forget it. I, I apologize well, no, I mean, for our listeners. They're not going to be the three seed. They're going to be that, the one or that two. That depends on. on what happens the rest of the playoffs. I mean, they won 11 games in 2008 and missed the playoffs. So, I mean, like, that doesn't guarantee them a bye. No, you're probably games. right. Prob- Things looked a little bit more even in the, in, than we've seen in a long time. So maybe we'll. By the way, the, eleven the, should be uh, so enough. The uh, Patriot game is in Pittsburgh, so the, the, that's a tough one. That's them. a tough. That's a tough mm-hmm. game. But they don't have to win every single game. But your but a good point is their margin for error. You know, because they're off. I guess a slow start is four and two. I guess they're they're <laughs> put this way. They're not. I think if the playoffs started today, how about this? They would not be in the one or two seed. Right. That's well, right. You know, I know that we're getting close to taking a break, but I do want to point out one statistic I saw about basketball, which is the season about All to right. begin. The well, Warriors, the season began last night. Well, okay. I didn't see. I didn't even notice. Uh, the Warriors, as we Our all know, are favorite. Our home team played, by the way. So, the Sixers played and the Warriors played last night. And they night. were. Okay. So the the Sixer, the uh, Warriors were 60, are 61% favorite to make, to, uh, make it to the playoffs. To the playoffs to the, finals, the finals. to the finals. 61% 61 to, make, to, to the, the finals. It. Conditional that they make the finals, they're an over 80% chance of winning. Wow. Well, it just shows Which is that, very interesting. Right. Yeah. Well, it shows the disparity of talent of the East and the West, yeah. at least yeah. the perceived talent of East and West. And look, the 61% comes from essentially Houston, which probably... And 90% of that 39% exactly. comes and, from then, and then Oklahoma then, then maybe Oklahoma City although they played last night although Russell Westbrook didn't play maybe it's o- OKC 
but that's about it. There's no one else in the. I mean, look, you talk about it. And in Dallas. dream a dream and talk yeah. about the Lakers. And in the East, look, LeBron and anybody. And you know, look, you could dream the dream that LeBron could lift the Lakers. Vegas does not think much of the of the Lakers at this point. More than ever, obviously, but they don't think they don't consider them to be a top team. Oh, point. I don't think they are a top so, team. I'm just, just saying. We're, I don't know. Shane's <laughs> not going LeBron, in. man. How, I mean, how did he pull the Cleveland along? But but he had, they had far much. It's much tougher competition in this. Well, that's the yeah, issue. That's, it's not that he yeah. actually. I think he has more talent than he had with Cleveland. But either way, that's been the first half hour of here on Morton Moneyball. Uh, three quarters to go. Stay with us and please join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. We're here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Thanks to our associate producer and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, for bringing us back with some exciting music here on this Wednesday morning. I'm Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. And I'm here with my co-host, professors of statistics, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. So, guys... Um, we were also, you know, besides we talked a little bit, obviously, baseball. We talked a little bit a little bit of football, though we have a lot more football coming up on the show. Um, let's talk a little bit of college football. And I don't know if you guys saw, but four of the top ten teams lost. Lost. They did. Lost this week in football. And Penn probably, State? Georgia? Yeah, yeah, well, so Georgia was probably the biggest surprise to everybody right. because not only did they lose to LSU— but they lost by a considerable margin to LSU. I, I forget if the score was something like 30-something to 16. They won, LSU won by at least 17 points, somewhere in that range. Now, what's interesting about that, I wanted your thoughts on this, and just explain to our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball how that could happen. So you actually go to the Massey Peabody ratings, okay? And actually, Georgia's still third. So actually, no change. So they got beaten soundly by LSU. Now, LSU did move up. Not surprising. LSU, well, LSU was what? They twelve. Were the, they were twelve. They were a good team. Good team. And they moved to nine. Yeah. But Georgia stayed where they are. Now, what I don't have is their power rating. So how much did their power rating go down? So they might have been third by a wide margin, and now they're third by a small margin. But does it surprise you that they stayed in the top three? Does that imply that Massey Peabody or many systems have really strong priors and it takes more than one data point to knock them off? What would be a rationale? Because most people all would right, say, so, how, could you, how could you not fall somewhat? So I'll, I'll mm-hmm. respond by a couple of things. First of all, they don't look, look at win-loss and, and points scored as much as they do play success and sort of underlying fundamental valuations for the game. They have a game score, which I don't know how it's calculated, but it's used. So my guess is that Georgia didn't play as badly as you think. They Just, look pretty bad. So well, our, I, 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 well, our you producer know Matt Dats, I believe, was at the game. So Matt can, yeah, yeah. Georgia looked well, bad. I have to say, I mean, they, they've been. Uh, let's just, or LSU let's, let's, look good. Let's wind back to the beginning of the season where Michigan, I think, lost the first game, mm-hmm. and uh, they and lost it to Notre Dame. To no- by the way, they did lose to Notre Dame. All of a sudden, that loss is not looking so bad. But it's interesting because I remember vividly that that Massey Peabody thought Michigan played pretty well, and people at the game said Michigan did badly. Blah 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 blah. Yak yak yak. But there we are. Michigan is. Now one of the favorites to make the make the finals or the or the the top four for the for the championship. Yeah, they're in Massey Peabody. They're rated so I, four right you now. Know, so I'm not so quick to just judge the way mm. you know a lot of things that decide on our point of view and how the game goes has to <laughs> often um, ro- ro- kind of rotates around a couple of very key plays. And maybe if you look at the entire picture, but I'm not saying it. So yeah, the Georgia is, LSU. There were 20 key plays that all went against Georgia. Yeah. Georgia looked bad. I mean, LS, let me say I don't want to say that. LSU looked really good in that game. LSU deserved to win that game. Yeah, well, and, and I mean, I guess I, I can't argue what Massey, why Massey we don't know what they did, yeah. so. not moving because I do know that they don't go by game results. Um, but 
you know, it one argument for Georgia not moving that much is, you know, we do expect maybe like one loss for some of these top teams. And this is a loss again. I mean, they against didn't lose the against team. nobody. They yeah. lost against another top team. They also play very few games against top teams. It's ridiculous mm-hmm. how the college That is definitely That's true. Right. Well, guys, I could talk to you anytime. But, of course, we have a guest here on Wharton Moneyball. Uh, so we're fortunate to have uh, Chase Stewart on the line. Uh, Chase is the owner of Football Perspective and chief evangelist at ProFootballReference.com. He also works with FootballGuys.com a freelance writer at 538, and he's also a great Twitter follow at at FBG Chase. Chase, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate the kind words. How are you doing today? We're doing great. Yeah, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. So we have lots and lots of stuff to talk to you about, especially with the NFL right now. Um, We were joking off air. We broke our rule about talking about stuff off air, um, about the Bills, Nathan Peterman, and kind of, in our view, why? he's kind of, you know, why? <laughs> why is this guy still playing football? Yeah, so um, I know you've done some work or thoughts and looked at the Bills passing game. Um, how bad is it? How bad is it historically? Or is this just us, our eyeball test, and said, man, this guy's really bad? No, no, this is, uh, it's worth focusing on. You're, you're allowed to do it. It's been that bad. I mean, you would think it's impossible in 2018 to be as bad as they've been. But they, they somehow keep managing to reach a new low each week. And obviously, we saw a, a game-ending pick six last week. This year, Buffalo's completing just 50.6% of their passes, which is just amazing when you consider that the entire NFL is completing 65% of their passes. As a team, Buffalo's passing for only 123 yards per game, which, which is a mind-boggling number. And so if you look at the, the NFL average, the last time, the average team in the NFL pass for under 123 yards per game was in 1941. So your eyes are not deceiving you. It's been pre-war era bad. So how did they win two games? You know, the the Vikings game, it was almost easier to understand as a fluke. You know, he could say, like, well, this was this completely hard-to-explain, once-in-a-year sort of event that just made no sense. Beating Tennessee and actually being competitive with Houston does add some legitimacy to what they've done as a team. Yeah, let's remember, I watched the end of that game. They were up 13-10, to 10, I think it was, with, I don't know, two or three minutes left. And then Houston kicked a field goal, I think, to tie it. And then Peterman, like, he's going to take him down the field for the game-winning drive. Yeah, for the other team. Threw it right to the other guy. I mean, the classic across the body, across the field, diagonal, ball pick, pick six. <laughs> It, it, it was pretty bad. And, and, you know, I think that they have been – so we're, we're only talking about the passing game. And so th- this passing game is historically bad. I mean, they're averaging 3.8 yards, you know, on on passing plays. So including sacks, they're getting just 3.8 yards per pass play, which is just a, an unbelievably low number, um, along with, you know, three touchdowns to nine interceptions. So it's all terrible on the passing side. However – the rest of the team is still not that bad, and this is a team that was in the playoffs a year ago, albeit not a very good team, even in 2017. But they have a, a, a pretty impressive pass defense, and they've been able to run the ball effectively enough. Josh Allen's also done a, a pretty good job as a runner. You know, he has not done very well as a passer, but he's been able to actually add some value in, in the running game been able to move the ball enough to be competitive. And then, you know, with a defense that is at least, let's call it an average NFL defense, 
you can win some games. If well, you not just I know I, I Chase. I agree with you. I mean, just to give you some stats, I know Adi has a question for you. Josh Allen in the thirteen to twelve win against the Titans, their quarterback Josh Allen, who's now injured a little bit, had a massive eighty-two yards passing, and in the win against the Vikings, they had a total of one hundred ninety-six yards for the game and won twenty-seven to six. So it's obvious they've got a pretty good defense. Look. Their defense didn't give up that many points to Houston. Peterman gave them a bunch of points. So, but Adi, please, your question. Okay, so my question is, what's their game plan for the season? Are they trying to tank? Are they want, are they gunning for a quarterback in the as, with the first pick? What's what's the plan? Well, yeah. So I I don't think there's the, a they there, right? So there is no they in Buffalo because you've got players, you've got coaches, you've got management. Uh, certainly, the players aren't trying to tank. I think the players are going to do the best that they can. Of course, you know, well, I mean they have the careers to worry about. I'm not. That's not really. I'm not. I don't mean tanking in the sense of, of actually throwing games or, or putting out a lineup that's bad. I'm thinking in the sense of why are they? I mean, why are they sticking with a quarterback that is bad? That is bad. There must be someone to pick up that's better. Um, and yeah, then there's some have, quarterbacks out, out there that are maybe better. So my, my what what are they doing? I mean, are they essentially gunning for this for their first pick? And that, which which leads me to a follow up question, which is everybody's talking about the Giants right now because how bad they are, and they went with with. Quinn Barkley with their second pick, who's terrific, but his career's gonna he's got maybe five years. I mean, a running back has how long? Why didn't they pick a quarterback? And are they also gunning for that last pick, their first pick as well? Um, I just don't get why a team that that shouldn't uh, shouldn't go for a better quarterback. Yeah, Chase, could you give us your uh, to Adi's question? Could you give us your perspective on when the Giants picked Saquon Barkley at number two? How did you feel about that? And even now, even as great as Barkley looks, how do you feel about it? Yeah, and look, I think teams have you know competing interests at the time. You know, with Buffalo, they did try to address the quarterback situation with AJ McCarron. They they like Josh Allen. So I think they they had a plan in place. I don't think they ever expected to to be this bad as a passing team in 2018. With the Giants, you know, they were I think whether it was duped or just you know praying, they thought that there was a chance Eli Manning could still have a good year, and they were not alone. There were analysts out there that said. Look at the weapons on, on New York. There, there is a significant amount of skill position talent on this Giants roster. People thought if you gave Eli Manning that that last sort of, he could have that last hurrah by using Beckham and Shepard and and Barkley. And, they, and but you know the the problem is the offensive line in New York is so bad. And Eli Manning was a guy who four or five years ago wasn't that good. And now he's, you know, 38. So they were, when, when the Barkley pick was made, I was very surprised. And the main reason I was surprised was we saw the value of a rookie quarterback. We saw the Jets send three quarterbacks, three, three second-round picks to get their quarterback. They moved from six to three by sending three second-round picks. So that second overall pick could have gone for a significant bounty. And if you're not going to take a quarterback, there's no reason to stay in that second round. So that, that, that was the reason why I thought they would <laughs> Had made the move, and I think that the Barkley pick is showing exactly what people thought, which is why spend the second overall pick on a running back, and because even if he's as good as he is, you can still be one of five. So you've obviously done a lot of work on quarterbacks. So maybe kind of a two pronged question: How do you evaluate quarterbacks in like what I would call a more sophisticated way than just looking at? You know, uh, total yards for the game, touchdowns, touchdowns interceptions, yeah. or, you know, kind of as we're an analytics show, what's kind of a deeper look or some more advanced stats that you think about when you're evaluating quarterbacks? And also, if you could just uh, comment on the, the crop from last year. There, Well, one step at a time yeah. here. Let's first get how he does it, and <laughs> well, then we'll get yeah, it. Yeah, then I want to hear about rookies. it. Though. 
I do think it's getting harder to evaluate quarterbacks. So let's start with that. You're seeing in today's NFL with these really short passes and you've got the touch pass and the bubble screen pass that you could see 80-yard touchdowns that any quarterback can throw. That is making it challenging to evaluate quarterbacks. So I think it probably takes more time than ever to really understand which quarterbacks are doing the most. Now, you can evaluate a passing game, I think, pretty easily. The, what I always have done, passing is about efficiency. And so, you know, total stats are usually, they're interesting, but the, the most important thing, and this holds up throughout any era of NFL history, is pass efficiency. And so you, you look at passing yards, but you, you really need to do it on a per-attempt basis. So you start with passing yards per attempt. You need to incorporate sacks because sacks are an important part of the passing game. Uh, so you include that in your formula. And then you need to give bonuses for touchdowns and penalties for interceptions. So there's a metric called adjusted net yards per attempt uh, that we have used when I used it at Pro Football Reference. I use it at, at Football Perspective. And so adjusted net yards per attempt, it includes sacks. It gives the touchdown bonus. It gives it an interception penalty. And it's an efficiency stat. It's, it's simple to calculate. There's nothing proprietary. Uh, you can do it for any time, any season, any era. And that holds up as the teams who are best at adjusted net yards per attempt usually are the best passing teams. So could you tell us, as, as you're looking at this season right now, who are the teams that are doing well, or who are the quarterbacks that are good on this particular metric as we stand here after you know six games of the NFL season? Yeah, so there, there are five quarterbacks, well, those five-plus, that, that have really stood out, and it's Mahomes, Breeze, Goff, Rivers, and Ryan. And those, I think, have been the five best quarterbacks this year. They're also the five best by this statistic with an asterisk. And the asterisk is actually the number one quarterback is Ryan Fitzpatrick. And, you know, he had such a remarkable performance early in the year that he, he is still number one in that. And you know, there's sort of a separate issue as to what that means. But he, uh, there's no doubt when Fitzpatrick was playing well, he was as good as any quarterback. But, yeah, this year, you know, going forward, you'd look at – Mahomes, Breeze, Goff, Rivers, and Ryan. They, they've been sort of your five front runners for MVP. So one of the things that, that uh, I've been reading a lot about with football kind of analytics is sort of the, the play grading where, where people watch the game and then they just sort of mark on, on, on a, maybe a scale of one to five or minus two to plus two how the player performed. How much value does that add to, say, a quarterback evaluation? Because you can essentially say, well, let's just say that pass, that interception was not the quarterback's fault. Or uh, if you add them up through the season, that might actually make an impact. Is, is, is that have any, uh, is there any evaluations of quarterback that kind of use almost a subjective valuation? Yeah, there are. And, and that adds you know, a lot of value. I think that it's important that people realize there are many ways to evaluate passers. Uh, but, you know, the, but, but some, for me, I have a personal you know, bias against statistics that you can't understand when you don't have access to it. So subjective grading systems have their place, but you can't really do a lot with them because you can't dive into the numbers and understand how you get there. I think it's, it's an important part of the analysis. But, uh, you know, those, those values are only going to be as good as the inputs, right? So if you don't know what the input is, of you course. don't know what the subjective values are, I think there's a limit to how much value as an outsider you can put on it. But as an insider, yeah, I think it's, it's critically important because stats only take you so far. Because it, uh, another, it, another stat I do like though, that people have started to really focus on is air yards for a quarterback and how, how far in the air past the line of scrimmage passes are going. It'll give you a sense of the flavor of a passing game, which you know, traditional stats won't. And, and there are, thankfully now, there are a lot of publicly available sources that'll show you 
how teams are throwing the ball, and it does speak to the difficulty level that a quarterback faces. Chase, this is uh, Shane Jensen. When you were kind of listing out the top quarterbacks from the season, one name that kind of was was missing that popped into my mind is is Tom Brady. And, and I, I mean, I, I've been watching him all season. I agree that he is not, you know, at an MVP level like he was last year. Is he far off from those five-plus guys? Or is uh, did, are you seeing real signs of uh, degradation at this point in his game? Or is it just sort of that he's, you know, randomly a little bit below these guys? Yeah, fair point. Uh, he, right now he ranks 12th, so he is certainly not far off, but I think he's behind. But remember, this is only this is an average of how he's done up until this point in the year. And, and as you said, he has not been the, the Brady we've expected to date. But that doesn't mean things are not going to change. You know, Rob Gronkowski has not had a very good year. He has not had a, a typical Gronkowski year. Obviously, they were without Edelman for much of the year. They've been without Josh Gordon for much of the year. So I think from a, you know, what are his weapons looking like you could see in a month from now, Rob Gronkowski, Julian Edelman, Josh Gordon playing great, and Brady putting up fantastic numbers. But in September, that just wasn't the case at all. And so I think you really saw Brady struggle, particularly in that Lions game. But but he also struggled for stretches of other games this year. Uh, the, the weapons were not there. He was not in sync with his receivers. And I think there was just a talent deficiency uh, in the New England passing game for much of September. Can you comment on uh, on our Philadelphia quarterback, Wentz? You know, it's a little surprising. I thought I would have expected, uh, you know, Wentz has sort of flown under the radar, and I think he, he struggled a little bit. But he, he is now doing well. The last two games, he, he really, I think, came on, even though the, the Vikings game was a loss. He, he started to look kind of what we were expecting last year. And I think Wentz was not... Um, in some ways, he was a little bit overrated, I think, by the national media in terms of his ability. I don't think he was quite at an MVP level last year. Um, but, you know, this year he ranks ninth already in adjusting net yards per attempt. And I think he's got, you know, if, if I was an Eagles fan, I'd be feeling good about how he's looked the last two weeks and, and what that means for the rest of the season. I think I'd also feel good that we're 3-3 three and three and only like half a game out of the division. It's not bad either. Um, <laughs> what other things besides quarterback ratings are you looking at? Uh, what other parts of the teams are, are you looking at as well or overall rankings of teams? Can you tell us what else you're working on? Yeah, I mean, you know, what, what, I, what I have found interesting is, is really just looking at the league as a whole and, and so it is still in the passing game, but you know, we have seen just remarkable passing numbers this year, and I, I wrote about it after week two when the, the NFL set really by leaps and bounds a single-week passing passer rating record, and then in week four it basically you know went right up against that but also the passing yards record. I think what we're seeing, that the trends that I find interesting are the, the quantity of passes being attempted. So teams are really shifting away from the running game, and I think it's – it, it, there is a uh, the the culmination of years of statistical research saying teams should be running less. Uh, it, for whatever reason, it seems to have finally taken hold this season. We'll see what happens as the weather worsens and whatnot. But right now, teams are rushing just 25 times a game. That would be the lowest in NFL history, and, and they're doing it despite actually doing very well from an efficiency standpoint. They're averaging 4.3 yards per carry. That would be the best in NFL history. Well, so because it's a surprise, I would guess, right? Never. 
of yeah. running less often. Yeah. So, uh, Chase, let me ask you a question. Do you think um, when we look back on this era, maybe in a similar way, but not for the same reason, like, you know, the late 90s in baseball, which, you know, was obviously, let's call it a possibly a performance-enhancing drug era, et cetera, do you think we're going to look back at these three or four years or five years or ten years of the NFL and maybe rules will change to balance things out again as, like, it's non-comparable? Like, maybe someone's going to throw for 6,000 yards this year. Who knows? How do you see just the overall league? I think yes and no. Um, I think that you're absolutely right. It's a different era. I think the no part is it's always kind of been like this. I mean, the NFL has always had significant changes in, in how passers look. You know, 20 years ago, yeah, the passing numbers weren't that good, but the numbers 20 years ago were, looked like Drew Brees compared to the numbers in the mid 70s. And so you, you always see rules and you know, changing how things look. That the question is going to be, you know, Joe Namath's numbers are terrible right now. I mean, Joe Namath wasn't a great quarterback when he was playing. So I think it's for analysts, they have to understand what each era means and what each season means. But to the other part, you know, I don't know if there's going to be a rule change in, in another direction because I do think this is what the NFL wants. I think this is, uh, if there's a quarterback who throws for 6,000 yards this year, I think the NFL would say, good, I like that. So I, I don't know if there's going to be a reversion where you see rules coming into effect that's going to put us back into the you know, 2005 level. Well, Chase, we want to thank you for your time this morning. Uh, Chase is the owner of Football Perspective, chief evangelist at profootballreference.com. He also does work with footballguys.com, also on 538. And if you want to follow him on Twitter, I already follow him on Twitter, but if you do as well, you can follow him at at FBGChase. Chase, thank you again for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Hey, thanks so much, guys. Have a great day. Yeah, you too as well. So, guys, I, I think the most shocking thing that Chase talked to us about, maybe in the last 15, 20 seconds we have here, NFL rushing's at a low, but its effectiveness is at a high. And that's one of the things. Makes sense. We, well, we will talk about this in the last half hour. That's why these statistics certainly can be misleading, because you mm-hmm. might say, well, obviously then run more. And that's the problem where, if you'd like, the data and the, if you like, the causal we feel, inference We feel like there link. would probably be a drop in the efficiency correspondent with an increased rushing if they Absolute, were to try it. Absolutely. But those are our two stats of the day here on Wharton Moneyball. Rushing is down, but its effectiveness is up. So that's been the first half here on Wharton Moneyball. We have a great guest after the break to talk to us about the NBA. We obviously have the last half hour. We're going to talk about some over-unders and, of course, our NFL Moneyball matchup. So please stay with us and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide here on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. Again, this is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner. And, of course, we're on live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week. We're also on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can listen to our podcasts. And, of course, this is a call-in show. So if you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Thatz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And, of course, you can also follow us on Twitter at WMoneyBall. So, guys, one of the great joys I know, besides being with you guys for two hours every week, is that we get to talk again, just like we did with Chase Stewart in the last half hour. We get to talk to people about other sports. And this morning, we get to talk to Ian Levy, who's a senior NBA editor for Fansided and The Step Back. He's previously written for 538, Vice Sports, Sporting News, Sports Illustrated. Ian, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks a lot for having me on, guys. 
Oh, it's great to have you back on. Of course, what's really great for me, not that I don't love all sports, but it's great to have the NBA back. It's, it's, it was just last night was exciting to turn on the TV. Of course, for the longest season in the entire, yes, the entire professional it, but, but, sports, but, relative to the need to differentiate. But NBA is, <laughs> NBA is back. So, Ian, um, could you talk to us a little bit about, in some sense, we've talked a lot about it on the show, that the NBA may be at the moment the least competitive sport in the sense of the number of teams that have a chance to win the title. Obviously, the Warriors are sitting here at the top with, as Adi was saying, maybe a 69% chance to make the finals, and then if they make the finals, an 80-plus percent chance of winning it. How do you see the Warriors? Is their separation from the rest of the NBA is great? How do you see the Warriors right now? I mean, like the numbers imply, I think they're they're sort of an overwhelming favorite. Uh, and, you know, there's a handful, maybe three, four, five teams that uh, sort of have an outside chance of challenging them. But, you know, we saw last year with the Rockets, uh, everything sort of has to break in, in favor of, of one of those challenging teams for them to, to really unseat the Warriors. The, the Warriors are just um, they're so deep and can beat a team in so many different ways. If you go back to that Western Conference final series with the Rockets last year, um, you know, the Rockets really succeeded in a, in a lot of different parts of their game plan. They, their defense uh, really gave the Warriors problems. They really sort of pushed them into playing a different style into, you know, instead of this sort of freewheeling ball movement, uh, you know, the Warriors were, were really isolating a lot. They were hunting mismatches. They were trying to get, you know, Stephen Curry and Kevin Durant isolated on specific defenders. And it was really, you know, taking them out of what they normally do. Uh, and it, you know, it didn't really matter. They were still good enough that they could, you know, they could beat Houston at their own game. Uh, and so that's, I think, what everybody is looking at in, in trying to beat the Warriors is, uh, you know, you've got to have the pieces to challenge them to, you know, kind of push them off their style a little bit. But you also re- need to really get lucky and, and need to sort of have everything break in your favor. So let me ask you two questions. Let me start with the first one. I was Obviously, I'm a big NBA fan. Obviously, I'm an analytics person. When I was watching last year's NBA Western Conference Finals, I'm thinking if Chris Paul doesn't get hurt, I you know obviously the Warriors, the Rockets were up 3-2. I think the Rockets were going to win that series. Am I crazy? Were the Rockets the better team with a healthy Chris Paul? Or am I just trying to you know be a hater of the Warriors? No, I, I think they had a legitimate chance. I think uh, up 3-2, I think they looked like the favorites in that series. I thought they were going to win, too. I was pretty surprised. Um, but it's, you know, it's sort of two different questions. You know, were they in control to win or were they really the better team? And while, you know, a seven-game series is uh, yeah, a much better indicator of which team is is better full stop or, you know, however you want to say it, uh, you know, that a, a single game or, a, a, you know, something like the NCAA tournament uh, you can still have flukes. You can still have, um, you know, wild things happen even inside a seven-game series. So, yeah, I think the Rockets were right there. I think they probably could have won the series. They had as good a chance as they could have hoped for. But I still think the Warriors were probably the better team. Yeah, of course, over 27 from three didn't help the Rockets either. Let me ask you a, let me ask you a more strategic question. Um, if you were going to construct an NBA team today to beat the Warriors, would you try to beat them at their own game? Meaning you're going to get a bunch of three-point shooters who you hope maybe are better than Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and you know the Splash Bra and Durant at shooting threes. Or are you going to kind of go the opposite direction and say we can't be as good at them at their own game? Therefore, whether it's we got to play iso ball, we got to bring in big 
thug-like players to slow Triangle the game down. Offense. Yeah. So how would you how would you try to combat the Warriors if you were constructing a team? I think it's two different things. On defense, I think you want to construct a a defense that's similar to how the Warriors play. You want uh, guys that can sort of match up. You need uh, versatility. You need athleticism. You need guys who can switch and sort of uh, you know defend uh, across the positional spectrum. You need to be able to you know play that Warriors death lineup and not sort of get run off the floor. And that was what the Rockets had last year. You know, with PJ Tucker and and Luke Mabamute and and Clint. Kapel- Pella in the middle, they were sort of able to do that piece. And then on the offensive side, I think you want a, an offense kind of like the Rockets, which, uh, you know, also very efficient, and they sort of got lumped together with the Warriors because they take a lot of three-pointers. But, you know, the, the Rockets' offense was really, really different last year. It relied a ton on isolation, the individual creation abilities of, of Harden and Chris Paul. And those guys were so effective in one-on-one situations last year. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but it was something like it, like James Harden in isolation was as efficient as the league average for all other teams on like spot up possessions. That's how incredible they were in isolation. And the Warriors' defense is is so good, uh, and I think the Warriors' offense is sort of so um, you know you can't replicate it because you, you just you can't get another Steph Curry and Kevin Durant and put them on the same team, and so. You have to have, uh, you know, these one-on-one isolation scores who can maintain efficiency even in these typically inefficient scenarios. Um, and I think that's what you saw, you know, a few years ago, the, the first time the Cavaliers and the Warriors matched up, um, you know, when everybody was hurt for the Cavaliers and LeBron sort of went crazy and they, they still lost, but he put up these enormous numbers and it was him just sort of one-on-one being a battering ram and then when the Cavaliers were able to, to pull off the upset, it was LeBron and, and Kyrie Irving, you know, their abilities in isolation, their ability to, to score efficiently one-on-one with sort of out this, without this mechanism of team offense that the Warriors' defense is so good at disrupting. So, you know, I think the Rockets last year were kind of the ideal. When you look around the league this year, um, all the other teams that could challenge them, they all sort of have bits and pieces of it, but I don't think anybody sort of has a, as complete a, a picture as the Rockets did last year. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow along with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner. We're talking to Ian Levy, senior NBA editor for Fansided and the Step Back. Let me ask you one other question about the Warriors, and then I'm sure my co-hosts here have lots of questions for you as well. The rich get richer. How the hell did the Warriors get Boogie Cousins? And now, you know, essentially got rid of Javal McGee and got Boogie Cousins. I understand uh, DeMarcus Cousins is coming back from injury. The guy's numbers last year was like basically 26 points, 13 rebounds, 5 assists. I mean, you've added by many measures. I mean, maybe Anthony Davis. I think Anthony Davis is probably a better center, which was obviously DeMarcus Cousins' teammate last year. But how the hell did that happen? And does that even make them more unbeatable? Or... Could you make the other argument that they don't? You know, a big man who needs the ball is just going to slow their game down. How do you see Demarcus Cousins being added to the Warriors affecting them? Well, in terms of how he landed there, it was just sort of this fluke of uh, you know him coming off this injury, looking, excuse me, for a very specific kind of contract, and and not really being any teams out there who could offer him the kind of money he wanted or were willing to offer him the kind of money he wanted, and. Um, you know, it's easy to sort of look at this this minimum deal he took with the Warriors and think, you know, that's it's absurd that he took so little money. 
he could have gotten a lot more money. You know, he could have, uh, there was certainly a middle ground between the contract he wanted and the contract he ended up taking with the Warriors. But once he saw he wasn't going to get that deal, it made more sense to go to the Warriors, you know, win a ring, hopefully have some fun uh, and, and sort of showcase himself and then go back out there for that big contract next year rather than, you know, settling for three or four years at, at less money. And in terms of how he fits with the Warriors, I don't think he really makes them that much better. Uh, and whether, you know, he sort of ends up being a, an Achilles heel that could be exploited, I think that's possible. It kind of remains to be seen. Uh, obviously, he's, uh, you know, he'll be one of their worst defensive players right off the bat. Um, the the rotation that the Warriors have used at center, um, you know, these JaVale McGee and uh, Kevon Looney, uh, those guys are, are all very capable defenders. And so, you know, he Cousins will cost them something on that end. Uh, on offense, he's such a uh, ball stopper, and I, I don't mean that to be pejorative, but, you know, what he does, he's most effective with the ball in his hands, uh, you know, creating for himself. Uh, you know, he he might sort of push the, the Warriors into that style uh, that they played against the Rockets that sort of opened them up to, to you know, the possibility of losing. So, um, you know, for, for a team like Houston or a team like Boston or something like that, if they end up in a, in a playoff series, they might prefer uh, the Warriors' offense uh, running through, through Boogie Cousins, even if it's not significantly less efficient than it would be otherwise. Just that style might be sort of more preferable for them to play against. Um, I think the one thing that remains to be seen, how he'll affect them, is his shooting. If he sort of plays a, a really a much smaller role than he has with the Kings or the Pelicans, if he's willing to just kind of be a spot-up shooter uh, from the center position, the Warriors have never really had that as we've watched them in this run. Uh, the centers that they've used have, have either sort of been uh, as skilled passers like Zaza Pachulia or Andrew Bogut, who can sort of be in the middle of the floor and, and keep the offense moving around them, or they've been rim, rim runners like JaVale McGee, who sort of adds spacing that way uh and you know Draymond Green obviously plays some center and he can shoot some threes but he's not as accurate a three-point shooter or as willing a three-point shooter as DeMarcus Cousins um so you know we can really see the Warriors play you know a five-out lineup where everybody on the floor is you know is a is a willing and comfortable and accurate three-point shooter and so if Cousins Cousins is willing to sort of shrink into that role and really focus on that he could really give them a, a different dimension Ian, this is uh, Shane Jensen. When we when we're discussing the Warriors and and we're discussing how they might actually be beat, there's a lot of mights and there's a lot of coulds, and it just has a feeling of inevitability to me that they are going to be there at the end. And and whether you agree with that or not, do you kind of feel like right now are we in an era where that are they more inevitable? Are they more dominant? Or is it just the case that every, you know, basically every generation there's one or two of these teams that is dominant? Like when I I wasn't paying as much attention to basketball back in the 90s during the Bulls era. Did we was would we be having the same discussion about is it possible to beat the Bulls? Are the Bulls going to be there at the finals? Are are we repeating ourselves or are we actually seeing something relatively unprecedented with the Warriors? I don't think it's that unprecedented. I mean, obviously you could say you could make an argument that they're the best team in, in NBA history. At worst, they're certainly one of the best teams in NBA history. Um, and they've been able to, you know, sustain it over, over an era. But, you know, we had uh, the Celtics, what was it, like 11 titles in 13 years with Bill Russell, um, you know, Jordan. Uh, Six and you know, eight back, years. 
yeah, six and eight years back to back three peats and, and he was gone essentially the, the years that they didn't win it. And, um, you know, I, I sort of grew up watching those Jordan Bulls and they certainly felt just as, as inevitable, uh, to me as a kid as the Warriors did. Um, you know, I, I always rooted for the teams that played against Jordan in the finals, but I never really held out much hope. One of the things I think is interesting as sort of an offshoot of analytics is as we understand numbers and probability more as they relate to sports and talk about them more, we can sort of see that, uh, you know, uh, people weren't necessarily putting uh, accurate probabilities on the Bulls' chances of, of winning the title each year during that Jordan run, at least not publicly and at least not widely disseminated. So I think some of this Warriors inevitability mm. is sort of backed up by the numbers, and it's not that it's those numbers are any bigger than they would have been for the Bill Russell Celtics or the Jordan Bulls. It's just that we actually have the numbers and we talk about them and they're, you know, they're everywhere you look. So you sort of you see the evidence of that inevitability more than, than we did in other eras. That's a great. Uh, it's a great point. We can actually measure the ability, the, the Warriors' ability, and we can forecast with better accuracy, and so everyone knows ahead of time. Although there must have been Vegas lines, which always tra- always translate right out into probabilities. And so I wonder if we could look back into the into the '90s or the, maybe the Russell era, if if it's if that data exists, to see whether or not Vegas was as confident as at those teams winning as we are confident in the Warriors winning. So this is Audie Weiner, by the way. So, Ian, it's great to talk to you. But I want to ask you about the Lakers. So LeBron has moved to the Lakers. How does analytics play a role in forecasting what the Lakers are going to do? I mean, how do you evaluate what LeBron brings to a team from a more statistical perspective? I think the Lakers are are a a quandary from an analytics perspective. You sort of... um, I think you know what you're going to get from LeBron. You can sort of bake him in as a as a foundation for the projection of of what the Lakers are going to do this year. It's hard to measure uh, what the effect will be for uh, some of those veteran players, players like JaVale McGee and, and Rajon Rondo, Lance Stevenson, Michael Beasley. And then you also have to deal with um, you know, sort of projecting out the developmental curves of, of players like Lonzo Ball and Brandon Ingram, who I think – uh both of those in particular have been sort of um confusing from a projection standpoint i think lonzo ball um coming out of college you know he projected as uh, uh at that very top tier of draft prospect uh right there with markel fultz which ironically neither guy has sort of looked like the sure thing that they they looked like in the numbers coming out of college uh and ingram too uh, you know there was there was a case that statistically you know he was every bit as good as ben simmons and that sort of hasn't panned out in the way we were expecting um and you know kyle kuzma is expected to be a big part of them and he's another one who uh, um, you know, was not as, as highly a, a rated analytics prospect coming out of college. So you sort of have to wrestle with the unknowns there. And then I think um, some of the, the uncertainty around the Lakers comes down to things that it's hard to capture in the numbers. You know that um, – you know that there's going to be an adjustment period for the team and you're not sure how they're going to respond to that. I mean, if you look at the last two times LeBron's moved his, his, uh, his tenure with the Miami heat, you know, when he returned to Cleveland, both times in the middle of those first seasons, after he switched teams, there was a period where the record was not great. Uh, you know, expectations are obviously so high. LeBron brings those with him. And then all of a sudden there's all this negative attention, you know, why isn't work? 
working? Why isn't it working? How is it working? Um, and I think, you know, you had some, some chemistry issues in, in Cleveland. Uh, and so, you know, it, it was sort of remains to be seen. How will the rookies uh, sort of step up when that happens? Uh, how will the veterans uh, respond to, you know, LeBron and his intensity when that happens? Um, and then how will the, the team respond? You know, if the, if the Lakers get to the middle of the season and they're struggling and looks like maybe they're just going to be fighting for a playoff spot, do they then try and, you know, make a trade? Do they try and shake up the roster significantly? You know, are they maybe looking to move, you know, Lonzo or Ingram or something like that? for a more established veteran to to help them take advantage of, of what's left of LeBron's prime. I think uh, the way you're describing it, Ian, is that it, like, it's similar to what uh, Shane had said, which is there's a lot of ifs. Yeah, if LeBron James can make Kuzma, Ingram, and Ball a lot better, if Stevenson and uh, McGee and all of the other guys they've got, Rondo, still have something left in the tank, then, yeah, could the could the Lakers be... I don't know, the third or fourth best team in the West, that's probably the best-case scenario. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I don't think they're breaking into that top tier with the Rockets and uh, with the Warriors. Uh, and I think they're probably even a, a, a pretty sif- significant step below um, the Jazz, Thunder, um, you know, maybe even the Nuggets. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think probably the last sort of two, three playoff spots is, is their best-case scenario. So, wow. Well, so could you talk to us about how you think about player evaluation? So how do you evaluate players? You know, one of the players that I know, I think you've looked at, but a lot of us were intrigued when he came out of college was Trey Young. Uh, obviously, he was billed in many ways as the next Steph Curry, range from anywhere, great handle, uh, didn't shoot for as high a percentage as uh, Steph Curry did in college. Of course, Steph played at Davidson. But how do you view Trey Young, or in general, how do you evaluate individual players? Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's quite a bit harder, obviously, with college prospects because the context is so different. You know, as players get into the NBA and you get a bigger sample in in uh, NBA scenarios, you sort of have more meaningful data to work with. And there's a big jump from from college to the pros. Look at Trey Young. I think he uh, probably got mischaracterized. Uh, you know, he sort of put up these explosive scoring performances. Um, Early in that freshman year at Oklahoma, he was, you know, draining three-pointers from all over the floor, and those Steph Curry comparisons, uh, you know, kind of jump right to the forefront. If we're going to go with sort of an over-the-top comparison, I think Steve Nash might be a better comparison. Um, Obviously, Trey Young's shooting is a big part of what makes him special, but I think his vision and creativity as a passer is um, probably his most sort of unique and outlier skill. And I think we'll see that a lot more uh, in the NBA. We'll see that a lot more with the Hawks. Uh, I mean, obviously this year might be difficult because their roster is is young and rebuilding. But, uh, you know, at Oklahoma, they didn't have a lot of other scoring threats, and they definitely didn't have a lot of uh, other shooting threats. So, you know, he's playing in a, in a poorly spaced offense where he has enormous, uh, almost unprecedented offensive responsibility for scoring and creating shots for his teammates. His usage and assist percentage numbers are, you know, uh, some of the highest you'd find among any draft prospect. So, yeah, we're, we're looking at a guy with sort of uh, subpar offensive teammates, 
um, and tasked with creating almost everything for them. Uh, so I think some of the some of the numbers that sort of look like red flags in his profile, I think you can trace back to that context. So things like you know him having a, a relatively high turnover percentage, um, him having uh, you know maybe not a, a sterling assist to turnover percentage. A lot of the great passes he's making are ending up in, you know, missed shots, you know, missed wide open shots. And then his three point percentage, uh, you know, took a dive as he moved into the conference season last year. And it was because defenses were keying in on him. They knew they didn't have to defend everybody else. Uh, and he, you know, was taking shots from two, three feet behind the three point line because, uh, you know, often that was the best shot. That Which, was of course, we call offense. comparing college to the pros, we call the pro three point line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I think one of the things that's most interesting about him is that you can look at him as kind of a bellwether for where the game is going next. His willingness to shoot off the dribble, to shoot deep, deep three-pointers. I mean, you saw that it was their second-to-last preseason game. Clock's winding down, uh, scores tied, plenty of time for him to sort of attack off the dribble. And the defender was laying off him, so he took a 30-footer from the logo and drilled it, and they won the game. Um I think that uh, that mindset that he's bringing to the game is uh, is really different, and so he sort of has this, you know, if we call it a Steve Nash skill set. So if he's got a Steve Nash skill set with a, a Stephen Curry brain, uh, you know, we're going to really see how far the the game is moving in terms of style and approach and things like that. And I, I think he's going to be a really interesting guy to watch as his career unfolds. By the way, if, if you're comparing him at all in the sense, forget Steph Curry for a second, if you're comparing him at all sentence-wise to Steve Nash, Mr. 40-50-90 for multiple yeah. seasons, I mean, Steve Nash was an incredible incredible player and you know Steve Nash when he looks back and the only thing he says he regrets is that he didn't shoot more and given he shot 40% from three 50% from the field and 90% from the line he probably should have shot a little bit more um could we make maybe pivot a little bit obviously this is an analytics show as well as a sports show could you talk to us about the advancement in analytics that you've seen so you've been doing this for a number of years how where is analytics right now in the NBA right now compared to where it was, let's say, five to ten years ago? I mean, obviously it's come an ab- absurdly huge way. One of the things that's, that's hard in answering that question is, um, you know, on the public side where I'm working, we really only see the tip of the iceberg. Most of, of the advancements, most of the, the sort of cutting-edge stuff is happening behind closed doors. It's proprietary. Um, you know, it's things that teams are investing in and, and are sort of keeping close to the vest. Um, but I think you can, uh, you know, you can see bits of pieces, bits and pieces leak out. Some of the public tools uh, that are available, um, you know, the NBA's website uh, around the middle of last year released these defensive matchup statistics, and um, so you can look at uh, every uh, offensive player, and for every uh, possession that they played, every possession that they were on the floor, you can see which defensive player was defending them, and those were calculated uh, from the the NBA's player tracking statistics. So this is the uh, second spectrum is the company that provides this uh they've got cameras it's something like 25 frames per second that are taken uh converted into digital data and so you have this you know xy coordinates um 
And so the, the defensive matchup data is provided by an algorithm that calculates the offensive player and which defensive player was closest to them for the majority uh, of a possession. So, you know, we've, we've essentially got this, you know, machine learning AI thing that's now providing uh, stats that are publicly available on the NBA's website and are, you know, are, are fairly useful. Um, so what and, do you do with fairly... that, that information? If yeah. you mind? Now yeah. that I know a, a given possession, I know its result probably, and I know who is guarding whom. How does it? How does it? How does the public use that? Well, there's all sorts of things. So, um, like one of the things we looked at last year was like who's uh, most effective defending LeBron James, and so you can look at. Uh, to some degree, uh, you're looking at a relatively small sample because we we only had the data for one year, so. You know, LeBron only plays Western Conference teams twice. Um, you know, maybe a, a defender only played one of those games because they had an injury or something. But you end up with a sample of maybe, you know, a dozen or 15 guys who have defended LeBron for 100 or 150 possessions over the course of a season. And you can see who does the best job of, you know, reducing his field goal percentage or making him uh, shoot more uh, than pass or, or things of that nature. And then you can also look at how the offense uh, scored. So you can see, you know, LeBron scored whatever X number of possessions, uh, you know, when Torian Prince from the Hawks was defending him. But you can also see how the Cavaliers as a whole, uh, how many points per possession they scored when Torian Prince was, was matched up with LeBron. So you can sort of see those trends. And then one of the things I think that's really interesting at Nylon Calculus, we have some, some people, Jared uh, Dubin and Krishna Narsu, sort of added another layer to that took that matchup data and added positions and you can see um, you know you can sort of reverse engineer it and look at defensive players who have uh, the most versatility so uh, Luke Mabamute who we were talking about earlier for the the Houston Rockets he was one of the few players in the league who spent at least 10% of his defensive possessions matched up against each of uh, each of the five positions so he spent at least 10% matched up against centers and at least 10% matched up against point guards and everything in between so there's all these different ways that you can both sort of look at, at effectiveness and you can sort of get a sense of role and how players are used and how teams are sort of setting up their their systems to work on these things i don't want to get too technical but i just have a, a, a practical question this data is re readily available yeah, it's on the NBA's website, uh, stats.nba.com. Uh, you can go to any player's page, and then there's a, a defensive matchup option. Uh, so you can look at all the players who defended them, or there's a menu option to sort of look at the, the whole data set for the whole league. But, yes, it's all there. It's, it's all there. All, uh, right there and ready to be played with. Mm. All right. I so, set my students on it. There we are. So, <laughs> so, Ian, we just have a few minutes left. I just wanted to – so we've obviously spent a lot of time talking about the Warriors, spent a little time talking about the Lakers. How do you see this season progressing? Let's spend just a few minutes. How do you see the Eastern Conference going? I mean, we're obviously sitting here at the Wharton School in Philadelphia. Obviously, we're optimistic. You know, last night's game didn't go as we wanted, but, you know, the Celtics are a darn good team. How do you see the Eastern Conference going, and what are you looking for in the entire league this year? I think the Eastern Conference is, is pretty quickly going to – going to become clear that it's the, the Celtics, the Raptors, and the, and the 76ers. Those are the teams that seem um, the, the deepest, the heaviest at the top in, in terms of, of uh, star power. And yeah, I think there's a pretty clear line between them and teams like the Pacers and the Bucks. 
who either have, you know, questions about depth or questions about, you know, style of play or, or, uh, you know, regression from last year in the case of the Pacers. Um, and then, you know, those, those three teams, I can imagine just sort of jockeying for position throughout the year. And then once you get to the playoffs, it's going to come down to health and, and matchups. I think, um, Playoff series between any of those three teams are going to be really interesting. I'd probably put Boston, you know, slightly ahead and, and, uh, 76ers and Raptors, you know, just behind them. Maybe it's like a, you know, 40, 30, 30 probability or something like that for, for those teams coming out of the East. Um, but I, I think we're, we're headed for a, a very interesting and exciting playoffs. There's going to be a lot of great storylines. Uh, I think whoever ends up, um, you know, I think there will be some interesting challenges for the Warriors uh, in the playoffs. I think the Jazz, the Rockets, the Thunder, there are some teams that will push them. There are some teams that will take some games from them. There are some teams who will uh, who will make it interesting. I don't think we're going to look at a you know a four 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 situation for the Warriors. And then when we get to the finals, whoever it is, I think is is going to push the Warriors. But um, ultimately, yeah, I think we end up in, in the same place, Golden State, and then we get to talk about Kevin Durant's free agency and, and whether that changes anything. Well, Ian, we'd like to thank you for joining us this morning on Morton Moneyball. We'll be talking to Ian Levy, senior NBA editor for Fansided and The Step Back, previously written for 538, Vice Sports, Sporting News, The Cauldron at Sports Illustrated. So, Ian, thank you for joining us this morning on Morton Moneyball. Thanks a lot, guys. So this has been the first three quarters of our show. We've obviously talked about some baseball. We've talked about NFL. We've talked about NBA. I know people are screaming. I know we're going to talk about some tennis in our last half hour because there's a lot going on (laughs) in tennis. So do not worry, tennis fans. So this has been three quarters of our show. Please stay with us and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Thanks again to our associate producer and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, for the music bringing us back to our last quarter of our show. And, of course, we want to thank Chase Stewart and, of course, Ian Levy, our two guests on the show today. And, of course, this is a call-in show. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Guys, before... I did promise our listeners some tennis, but before we get to tennis, thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, I actually have some interesting data for you on, remember the question we asked Ian about was, is this a dynasty, Shane asked him, is this a dynasty like we've never seen before? Well, here's a little bit of data. So in the Bulls, let's call them heyday years, the 95-96, 96-97, and 97-98 championship years, preseason, the first year, 95-96, the Bulls were plus 350. So by far, I mean, obviously this the This is for what? To win the NBA championship. To win the championship. What, what Ian was telling us is that we didn't have the analytics to kind of know how good these But I'm saying these, these were the betting were. lines. This was plus the betting three, lines was plus, plus 350. 96-97, which many people would argue was the best Bulls team. It was That's plus three fifty. No, no, so that was ninety five, ninety six. Not minus three fifty. Plus three fifty. Plus three fifty. Okay, so they were long shots to win. Yeah, twenty percent. Yeah, roughly a twenty percent chance to win. Okay. Then they were even in the ninety six, ninety seven. Okay, so fifty percent. Mm-hmm. Then in their last of the three peat years, they were plus one forty. So a little bit worse. Now, just a little to less get, than even, which is yeah. not too far because of... Right. And now for the Lakers' big three years with Shaq and Kobe, there were plus 400, plus 180, and plus 200. And so all, 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 not nothing close to 50%. Somewhere in, nowhere close. And of course, the, the Warriors this year are roughly at 50%. So the only team among those, let's call them the Lakers, the, sorry, the Bulls' 
three P years, the first three P years, and the the Lakers that were close was there was the one year, the greatest team of all time, some would say. Ninety six, ninety seven was the year they won whatever, seventy two games. It was eclipsed by the Warriors, but the Warriors didn't win the title. They were even money essentially, and the Warriors are even money. So no, I think. Let me just say, my assessment of it is it's not that different. This is not that not different. That different. Yeah. And also, I would also say I, you would probably have a better recollection of this. But one of the reasons why the Warriors are having advantage is it's all one sided. So they're going to they're going to their opponents will will knock each other out in, in the West, and then they'll they'll play the essentially the championship, which will basically be the Western conference conference final, final. and then the and then the, the then it's going to be over. Maybe it wasn't like that. Well, I mean, during the Shaq Lakers year, it was years. It was kind of like that. I mean, there was yeah. nobody coming out of the East to kind of nope. be competitive. Nope. And I mean, I think maybe even during the Bulls year, I don't remember a lot of strong Western teams coming at them. Not particularly. I mean, the teams that would have been there, of course. Well, I mean, in between his three pieces, I mean, I mean, the Rockets I, were there. So, so count- the Rockets did win okay. two titles. Yeah. In, I mean, maybe, all right. And, and and I mean, I guess maybe one dynasty that we haven't talked about. You know, we we focused on the Shaq Lakers as opposed to the Magic Johnson Lakers. Right. Um, the Magic Johnson Lakers did have the Celtics coming at them every year. So that was something where I feel like, you know, maybe you would put spread most of your probability to those two teams. But between those two teams, it was almost I mean, a that's, coin flip. That's where it happens. I mean, the, the, right. I think the Warriors essentially have one test. That'll be the, the championship finals in the West. Yeah, I think if the, in that 10-year period of the 80s, I don't have all of them, but I think I have all of them. Um, I know the Lakers won five titles in that period. Um, the Celtics won three titles in that period. Of course, our 76ers did yeah. win one title in that period, and that's nine. There must be one other. Somebody won. Somebody else won a title in there somewhere in the 80s that isn't the Lakers, Celtics, or Sixers. But essentially, those teams were competing. And you're right. There was. As a matter of fact, that was kind of what people loved. And maybe that's something missing from today's game. It, I'm Well, I can never root for the Celtics. I do root whoever comes out of the Eastern Conference would be competitive in the finals. Because I think people kind of like this idea of, you know, maybe the Warriors on the West Coast and you have the Sixers or the Celtics on the East Coast. You know, you got the West Coast, East Coast kind of thing. But you're right. If the Western Conference Finals is essentially the NBA Finals, which is the way it's looking, it just doesn't excite people as much. And that was the beauty that we did have in those days. Yeah, no, no, that's right. And I mean, I just, I I do remember... One particularly uh, big memory for me during the kind of Shaq Kobe Lakers era was when they went up against the Kings. At least one year they went up against the Kings, and there was a feeling that that Kings Lakers, you know, that, 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 that conference final was definitely the final for the whole thing. They this, were going to roll through. Just to give you an idea, through. by the way, thanks again to Matt Datz, our producer. In ninety six, ninety seven, the Bulls played the Jazz in the finals. Entering the finals, the Bulls were minus six hundred. Okay, so wow. Well, that's about what you'd put the yeah. Warriors at right now, maybe minus 500. But, I mean, there is... To, ma- to make the finals. No, 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 no. Given the Bulls and the Jazz were already in the finals. Whoever the Warriors... Oh, I, I assume the so Warriors make the finals, whoever... They, they, they were over. a walk-all-over yeah, win. Yeah, that's basically what, no, the, that's what basic, the Warriors so, are right now. So, yeah. But I, let me say the thing. I, it's, I'm glad you guys brought this up, because a lot of people want to say we're in an unprecedented era. Well, actually, not we're really. not. No, we're no. actually not. not and really. let's remember, I think we'd all agree... You can't go back in time and predict it for sure. The Rockets had great players. Hakeem yeah. Olajuwon. The Bulls may have won eight straight if well, Michael it, Jordan hadn't retired. For yeah, those two and, and years. I mean, eight I th- straight. I think one of the uh, one of the best points that Ian made that really stands out to me is that maybe what's unprecedented or what's new is this is now the era of analytics where we can put numbers on some of this dominance. Like if we were to go back, you know, like if you go back in time and and kind of 
apply the same kind of analytics that are existing now to the Bulls, maybe that would have increased our feeling of inevitability because they'd be not just dominant in kind of an outcome sense, but they'd be dominant look, in like wait, let's go across you know sports. an analytical we sense. We could go we could go to the Yankees in the twenties and the fifties. We could go to the Celtics in the sixties. Yeah. We could go to you know I don't know. There's I'm sure there's a hockey period where the, the, the Canadians, Oilers, the, the Canadians, and the Canadians are the, 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 yeah, the Oilers. Yeah. So I'm just saying I don't think we're in an unprecedented era of this is such a dominant favorite for such no. a long period of time. Yeah. Um, I don't think so. Matter of fact, well, let me ask you a question. It's not in our over-under, but I'll ask it now and I'll transition to our over-under. The, bright, the, the standard in the last 30, 40 years in basketball has been the Bulls. Six titles in eight years. Yeah. Right now, the Warriors are, what, three titles in four years, right? Three long and, way to yeah, go. Yeah, three and four yeah. years. Do they get to six and eight? I mean, no, they have to go basically over replic- under. Over under. In, so under. they have four more years under. to go. I'm under. going under. 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 You're both going under. under. Yeah. Okay, so under six. Yeah, that's you? right. I mean, Eric, come on. He's I'm pausing. Going, I'm going under, and I'll tell you why I'm going under. Well, you've got to go under. Te- regression no, no, of no, the mean no, says under. But that's not. That's <laughs> part of the reason, but that's not the reason. If you told me that this team was going to stay together for yeah. four more years, which I don't know, and if you told me that they were all going to stay healthy for four right. more years. And that's what I'm kind of thinking is age. Age. I mean, at yeah. some point, you know, four years from now, Steph Curry's 34, 35. Yeah. I don't know if a, a six foot, 290 pound guard is still as agile and as able to shoot as he is in four years from now. So I think you have to go under. I think which, just... which really makes that Bulls run that much more, I mean, I almost said unprecedented, right? But well, impressive, certainly. Let's also remember, I mean, you guys, I know, know this stat. Michael Jordan was not 21 or 22 when the Bulls won that first title. He was 27 or 28. He had already been in the league for seven or eight years. It was only once Scottie Pippen joined him. Michael Jordan did not come into the NBA and start winning titles. He came into the NBA, whatever it was, 85. Their first title was 92. He had been in the league for seven years. So what made Jordan's even more impressive is six of those eight titles were between ages, let's call it 28 or 27 and 35. It's not like it was 22 to 28 or something like that. So it was kind of in his mid-career. So, guys, we have some other over-unders. Why don't we get to these? Um, Let's talk – well, we we spent some time with the NFL this season, but let's talk about that right now. Um, So the over-under is 2.5 games played by the Patriots in the playoffs. Over-under. So let's just talk about this for our fans here. 2.5 games played by the Patriots in the playoffs. So what would that mean? Well, they could have a bye – they could win the first game, the AFC Championship, and then go to the Super Bowl. That would get them over two and a half. Or they could not have a bye and at least make it to the AFC Championship game. So over, under, two and a half, I'll start with Shane Jensen. It saddens me, but under. I think under. under yeah. I, th- I think this is, a t- this is a Patriots team. We're just looking especially at the defense and at what I'm seeing as some signs of degradation in Brady's game that... I, I see this team as likely to make the playoffs, especially in that division, but not a team that is going to actually win multiple playoff games. Okay, Adi, where do you see it? Well, I'm going under, but not necessarily for the same reason. I just think that there's a lot of competition, and there's a lot of lot of games, and there's lots of opportunity to lose. And so I think two and a half is, is uh, three games would be impressive. And so I would argue that that's less than half. So Yeah, and, my, and my I forecast. would agree with that, but for a different reason. I think the Patriots, Patriots defense is obviously not particularly good. I think they're one injury away from being 
a not much better than, and you could name the players. Obviously, Tom Brady getting injured would be very serious. Yeah. But I think you even mentioned it, and, and also uh, Chase talked about it as well. If you don't have Gordon or Gronk or Edelman, Take away one of those three. Yeah. Then all of a sudden the offense, I'm not sure they're a 40-point-a-game team. They might be a 30-point-a-game team. And, and they kind of have to be a 40-point-a-game team to, to, to make it that far. To, so I think you you're, know, you're just pointing out there's a lot, a lot of paths out, or a lot of paths under in this case. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not that I'm unconfident, a lack of confidence in the Patriots. Just think I mean, there's too much right. probability I mean, on the it's, downside. It's, it's a credit to their you know seven straight AFC championship yeah. games that we are doing an over-under like this about them, right? I mean, because that's a very... That's that's a very high standard. Well, let me ask you. An, all right, so I'll, I'll just this isn't on our sheet. I'll give you another one. I'll replace the word Patriots by the Rams. Oh, that's a great one. Um, basically, do well, they have to go to the Super. Well, let's can we assume right now it looks at least the Rams gonna, are likely to be the one or the two seed. So yeah. they would have to win the Super. It's not win. So, they have so to it's basically, to the Super Bowl. Fair, do we have fifty percent odds on them winning the Super? And I'm getting, getting, getting the through Super the Super Bowl. I would say no. out of the NFC, I would probably take the under on that too. You would take Adi. You take the under yeah. as well. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's move to another uh, here. Let's go to the NBA. Let's go to 1.5 championship appearances this year for the total of the Warriors and Celtics. So the only way you're going to take the over here is if you believe the Warriors and the Celtics are the NBA Finals. What do you think? I'll start, Adi, with you this time. Are the, is 1.5 championship appearances for the Warriors and the Celtics? Oh, I'm, giving, I'm giving the Warriors, so that's basically the Celtics. Is that, uh, uh, God. Um, that's why they're, they're tough. These over-unders are not I'm, easy. Because you're going with, I'm actually going to go with less than that because I think the I'm going to go with the under because I think the Warriors the only challenge the Warriors have is to getting to the championship. So, and that's you mean the Celtics. The, no, the, you the, think the Warriors are going to get there? I'm going to get there, but no, but that's that they might not. If you have to take away some probability, it's because the Warriors not making it. Uh, the Celtics also have a uh, so I'm, I'm going under. I think the sum is less. Yeah, I'm going to go under as well, and it's less about the Warriors, which I you know I would I would I would. Pretty much guarantee are going to be in the finals, but oh no! Actually, well, actually, not, not the, even. The data not says sixty-one percent that they're making the finals. Um, but I also, I mean, I see the East as essentially kind of a three-way coin flip. Yeah, you know. And, so, and, and so I'm going to go over. But let me say why I'm going to build on what Adi said, and then we could have a whole show about this. Maybe in a few weeks we will. I like your description, Adi, of let's call it different paths. I think the Celtics are so deep right now that on any, and I'll go to your momentum or who's hot. You could flip. Celtics have 10 potential coins of players you could flip right now who could get hot in any given game. You don't need all of them to be hot in any given game. They've got such... Remember how good they were last year? And we could argue their two best players, Gordon Haywood and Kyrie Irving, although Jason Tatum might disagree with that, weren't even playing. So now you add Irving and Tatum, uh, Irving and Haywood, to that team, they've got... Eight, nine, ten players on any given day, and Brad Stevens will mix and match players on any given day. I think they have too many paths. That's why I think the Sixers. You think, that, you think they're 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 better than fifty percent? Better than fifty. They got to beat yes, Toronto and and the Sixers. I do. I do. I do. Better than fifty percent probability. I think but s- even if that's the case, you'd still add the Warriors point six one and point six one plus point five is still one point one, which is less than one point five. <laughs> I, I, I'm still with you, but I'm still going. I'm still going to go over. But you're right. More is All just. Right. I believe it's the modal outcome. Okay. But I don't know that it, how much probability yeah. I put on that. Um, guys, one of the th- great things we do here on Wharton Moneyball, besides the over under, which has been great during the season, is we get to talk about the NFL games. So let's move to our Moneyball matchup. 
Moneyball Matchups. As I say every week here on Morton Moneyball, I've said it for the last four years, I can just listen to the NFL music all day long. I, I, there's nothing more exciting to me than the NFL games. I, I love the NFL. And so we've got lots of interesting games this week. Um, so uh, for those listeners that are the first-time listeners, this is the point of the show where I'm going to call on each of my co-hosts and myself. I'll do it as well. We're going to pick a game. We're going to look at it against the spread and say what intrigues us about the matchup. So, Shane, let me turn it to you. Um, looking at the slate of games this week, which one catches your eye? Um, one of the ones I'm most intrigued by because I kind of feel like it's a it, it's an entire uh, division that we have a large amount of uncertainty about is the Cowboys at the Redskins. I think that's going to be a really interesting game as far as trying to finally tease out, you know, which of these teams maybe are are actually you know better than than the other. Um, yeah, it's because I three and three Cowboys and we could you know we've seen both these teams play some great games and we've seen both these teams play some very shoddy games. So I think I, I, I I'm just kind of intrigued by that matchup. Uh, you know, the, I guess the Redskins are essentially favored just due to home field. I mean, on even on a on neutral field, it looks like they're basically the the you know equal equal odds. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the Redskins on this one. I think the Redskins defense and and you know uh, Alex Smith can certainly are more than capable of managing the Cowboys. Yeah, I think I think the Redskins. I, I'm agreeing with you. I think they are going to win this game. But I think even at four and two, which not a bad record, they're going to be the least appreciated four and two team in the NFL right now. Nobody looks at the Redskins and thinks this is a deep playoff team kind of run. Yeah. I think most people, if you just said you know that know the NFL, if you had them guess how good are the Redskins, nah. I don't. I don't. Yeah. I, I, and I, I don't want to hijack. Um, our Moneyball matchups too much, but I'll just say I did watch the Redskins play on Sunday. Adrian Peterson looks fantastic. That guy, I, I'm enjoying that guy's kind of late career revival. To be honest, and he's playing with a, I think it's a dislocated shoulder. By the way, yeah. he's basically wrapped up and you know everything else. But yeah, Adrian Peterson, I think had 18 rushes for 97 yards or something. So what is their percentage of rushing versus? Versus passing. I don't know the answer, but uh, well, we did I mean, know we did hear the stat is, that yeah. teams are averaging about twenty five rushes a game. Yeah. I'm not sure the Redskins are way above that. Just yeah, Adrian Peterson is their number one back, and he's getting the load of the carries yeah. now, which no one thought could happen. Adi, what do you think? There's lots of games to look at. Which lots one of games to look at. Um, I mean, there's a, there's actually I'm really most interested, of course, in the ones that seem to be with teams that are roughly evenly matched. Um, and in particular, I, I would point to two. I'm certainly interested in the the Panthers Eagles. For a variety of reasons, of course, home field, you know, it's a Eagles game. There are lots at stake. There, in many ways, their season is uh, three. They're three and three. They're on the way up. We're looking at we're looking at uh, at uh, at Wentz, and I think he's he's we heard he's on the way up. I'm certainly very interested. And it's Eagles are slightly favored. They they are at home minus three point five. Um, I guess they're thought of as the slightly better team. Um, and so that's interesting to me. Yeah, I don't want to call that game a must win game, but you know, if the Eagles well, fall to three and four. And they would obviously lose the tiebreaker to the Panthers at that point because mm-hmm. they will have lost to the yeah. Panthers. And it's a home game. And then let's imagine the Redskins win the game. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. They're 4-2. and two. The Eagles are 3-4. and four. So the Eagles are two games back in the loss column. You're starting, I'm not saying You're starting di- to look long, and that's, that's the issue. And I think this is a big game for the, for the Eagles. Absolutely. Like, considering how much hope and hype and... Yeah, we don't, see, we, don't, we don't see the NFC in general as having a lot of room for error this year. There are a lot of really good teams on that side. Yeah, so I'm going to pick a game, by the way, and then we'll, we'll have time maybe to just rotate through. Our Adi, before I pick my game, you had a second game. I had a second game. game. Yeah, I mean, go 
just, just because Massey Peabody really loves the Saints and the Ravens, and they are playing each other, and yeah. they're considered equal teams and on neutral and field, and you got to be in top of the two best teams. It's playing a each very other. intriguing matchup. Of you know, I mean, the Ravens look like they have one of the best defenses in the NFL right now. And the Saints are certainly going to be a test of that. So I'm intrigued by you how, be, how you the Saints be interested match in the up two with best the teams or two of the best teams playing each other. I think it's also this. I hate to say it. It's the uh, irresistible force versus the immovable object type of game. You have one would argue the one of the best, if not the best, offense in football. I mean, Ravens haven't given up points to anybody. Yeah. I mean, no one's scoring on the Ravens. I mean, they had one game where I think they lost and they gave up some points. But, I mean, essentially this has been – and so I think people love that matchup. Like, who's going to win when yep. the great offense of Drew Brees goes against the great defense of the Ravens? I think that game is absolutely fascinating. And, again, also a crucial game. Maybe less so for the Saints because they have a little bit of – room in their division right now but you know the Ravens need to hold off the Steelers and Bengals and everything else that's that's a big game for the Ravens big big game so the one that of course caught my eye there's lots of lots of games that are interesting to me this week I think the Bengals at Chiefs is an interesting game two good teams two very good teams the Chiefs are favored by six which means three three and a half on a neutral field I've seen this Andy Reid song before. You know, teams off to a 5-0 and start. Wow, if they could have just beaten the Patriots. Well, they didn't just beat the Patriots. They lost, like, sort of just beat them. They yeah. lost to them. If they lose to the Bengals, you could make an easy argument that they've lost to the two best teams in the AFC. So why would I believe that they're all of a sudden, the playoffs are going to wake up, and then they're going to actually win you know, some massive playoff run. So I'm very, very interested in that game. I actually think the Chiefs are going to win the game, yeah. and that's because while I, I sort of like Andy Dalton and their offense, and I sort of like the Bengals' defense, Man. not enough. Yeah. Yeah, not enough. <laughs> yeah. Not enough. And, and to beat the Chiefs this year, you better score, and you yeah. better keep scoring. And I just don't think the Bengals will be able to keep up with that scoring. So I like the Chiefs in the game, um, but I think it's also a very, very interesting game. Very, very interesting game. Now, guys, before we get off the air, we have a couple minutes left. When we meet again in a week, we're here Wednesday, every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. I enjoyed being for the entire session. I know. It's it's great to have you here. We had an NBA break this week. It's great to have you here. We're going to have teams in the World Series. We can't wait, yeah. A week away. Yeah. Who's going to be in the World Series as we're sitting here next Wednesday? So I'll first go to Shane Jensen. I think it's going to be the Red Sox against the Brewers. That's what I think. Though, I mean, coin flips. Mostly coin flips, but that is... Well, uh, the if, Red Sox have a two-to-one coin Yeah, no, that's favor, right. That's right. The Red Sox... Favor uh, yeah, that's right I don't know. I mean... Yeah. Red Sox and Brewers, I think, personally. I have to uh, agree. Yeah. Red Sox are two to one favorite, and I think Milwaukee's at home for two out of the three games. So, if you just think, think maximum likelihood estimation, they're my choice. Yeah. So, not, um, I, I have to go with the Red Sox. It would take well. Put this way, you'd have to construct a huge set of arguments to not go with the Red Sox right now. You'd either have to say, well, you know, Verlander's going to pitch two more games, and you believe that gives him a, like a seven. You'd have to get to a point seven point seven five number for the Astros to be a favorite right now, right. down two to one. I, it's hard to construct that. On, given the priors as well, of course, 108 versus 103. The, so the, pr- the problem is, is that even though we've just said, and I think all of us have agreed, Red Sox-Brewers, I didn't say Red you, Sox you, Brewers. Oh, you didn't say Red Sox Brewers. No. So, so, but but just, I'll just stand up. I'm going, I would need significant odds to take that bet versus 
any other, the three other options. Oh, so, yes, so that's right. even though I am saying Red Sox Brewers, we're it's not, not that we're I'm not. pushing it to yeah. 50%. Well, it's we're, way we're, lower no, 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 way low. Well, you guys would all agree. I think we'd all agree this. I, I'm favoring the Dodgers. I'm going Red Sox-Dodgers, but ignoring okay. that for a second. Let's assume we assume Brewers-Dodgers is 50-50. The Red Sox are at what? At best, maybe 60%? Like two-thirds, one-thirds, two thirds, yeah. one, two one-thirds at this point. Yeah. So... Just one third. Is yeah, that we're basically, basically right. at one third. So, so, so next week we sit down and it's not Brewers Red Sox. Yeah, let's not tell us here on Morning Money. Right, right. Well, guys, this has been our two-hour show this morning. Uh, of course, as always, like to thank our producer Matt Datz not only for the pre-work but for sending me all kinds of stuff on the screen during the show. Thanks to our associate producer and sound engineer Dion Simpkins for keeping us on our toes and bringing us in and out of breaks and for the music that gets us excited. Of course, thanks to my show uh, co-host this morning Shane Jensen and Nadi Weiner. Some combination of myself. Eric Bradlow, the two of us. Cade Massey are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10, here on Sirius XM 132. Thanks to our two guests, uh, Chase Stewart and Ian Levy this morning. Between now and then, I don't even know what sports to tell you to watch. I'm excited the NBA's back. I'm excited that the NFL is in full steam. So between now and then, enjoy your sports, enjoy your analytics, enjoy your business problems, and we'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.